Welcome to Critical Issues Commentary, the podcast ministry of Gospel of Grace Fellowship, a non-denominational Christian church in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. This is Jessica Kramis, your host for today, and I'm speaking with Bob DeWay, Gospel of Grace's teacher and theologian and author of Critical Issues Commentary. In this series, we've been discussing the book Fervent, A Woman's Battle Plan for Serious, Specific, and Strategic Prayer, written by Priscilla Shearer. She, in this book, lists 10 strategies that she believes Satan uses against us. These 10 strategies she arrived at by polling different Christians. And then with each strategy, she starts with a paragraph saying what she would do if she were our enemy. Then there's also one verse citation. The verse is not quoted. It's just in parentheses. So we've been going through each of these strategies reading the verse, and just looking at whether or not those scriptures rightly applied show us the strategies that Satan uses. So we covered one through four last week. We'll try and get five through 10 done this week. So strategy five is against your confidence. The verse is Revelation 12, 10, and here's her words. If I were your enemy, I'd constantly remind you of your past mistakes and poor choices. I'd want to keep you burdened by shame and guilt in hopes that you'll feel incapacitated by your many failings and see no point in even trying again. I'd work to convince you that you've had your chance and blown it, that your God may be able to forgive some people for some things, but not you and not for this. Do you want to read Revelation 12, 10? It says here, then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God, the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. Okay. Now, just looking at that verse, is that something that happened in the past or is that yet future well a thrown down is yet future this goes on until god intervenes and brings the consummation of all things and we know that the accuser of the brethren is busy we could see that already back in the book of job which we mentioned right and and even in disagreeing with her in a lot of this book, we're not saying Satan isn't the accuser of the brethren or that we aren't tempted to look back at our failings and continue to feel guilty about them. That's but we, right. need to be, we need to be careful about saying that we have full knowledge of what Satan is doing. Right. That's not, that's a very good point. It's true that Satan is the accuser But notice who he's accusing and to whom he's accusing us before God. That's right. So as you read more, how is it that we can deal with the fact that Satan accuses believers before God? Right. We need to, as we've said in some of the other strategies, we need to stand on the promises We need to stand in the truth. We need to know the truth. And we need to trust that we have been washed in the blood of the lamb, that we will be presented with Christ's righteousness 
we, we do have our clothes washed white as snow. What we may feel and what we might think Satan is accusing us of isn't really relevant when we have been born again. And when we know that we will be presented as the sp spotless bride. Yes. And so that's getting to the heart of the matter. Forgiveness of sins, the once for all shed blood of Jesus Christ, it cleanses all of those who trust in him alone. And he cleanses our conscience from dead works, according to Hebrews, to serve the living God. And that part is clear. And so the promise of God is, is the forgiveness of sins. Right. And so I appreciate that she did point to an important thing, that Satan's the accuser. We do need, however, to make proper application of that and always look to him. And I believe that's why it says in Luke 22 and also in 1 Corinthians 11, why the Lord's Supper is a remembrance of what God did and a preview of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Yes. Why would we need to be reminded of these things? Because we tend to think only about what's going on right here and right now and try to come up with other ways to view life. And so we're remembering that Jesus Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust in order to bring us to God. And we're looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Right. This is a new covenant in my blood, Jesus said in Luke. And Paul recites that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So, therefore, it's true. The accuser does accuse us, but our hope isn't in anything but what he did for us, not what we think we're going to do for him. That doesn't mean he doesn't use us. He, and it's right. We do have a battle against our confidence. That's true. Mm -hmm. Because if we put confidence in self, in the flesh, Paul said he doesn't do that. Right. Okay. And I believe every, this is true. Every believer runs into this. Yeah. I do almost every day. And I need to remember the promises of God, what I've been thinking about lately. Faithful is he who called you, who will also bring it to pass. Right. And when things happen, and I think, well, this is an awful lot. How can I do all these things? And how can I fulfill my calling and get the study done and be ready to present things? And then I think, well, faithful is he who called you, will also do it. If God indeed called, he'll give me the grace to do what he's called me to do. Right. And one of these things, too, that I was kind of thinking about, yes, Satan accuses us day and night, but Jesus intercedes for us forevermore at the right hand of the, at the right hand of the father. So rather than a serious, specific strategic prayer against the accuser of the brethren, what we need to do is remember that Jesus intercedes for us. Remember that we're washed in his blood, that we can stand in the promises we have. And, and that is the way we fight. We fight by 
by remembering what we need to stand in. Right. It's a battle for our faith in God rather than faith in ourselves. And so it's commendable that this passage is cited, but we got to apply it correctly. Yes. We don't overcome the accuser by spending time, you know, doing sayings against the accuser. I'm not sure how she would apply that, but we need to just believe the promises of God. Right. And focusing on what we think Satan is doing is not standing in the promises of God. I trust Jesus Christ, the intercessor who intercedes for us in heaven, the right hand of God. He knows what the issues are. I go to him. I don't need to know more than what's already evident that I'm a sinner saved by grace and I need him to help me. All right. So strategy six against your calling. You actually just mentioned a verse that we should bring back up again here, but here's what she says. Strategy six, your fears, confronting your worries and claiming your calling. If I were your enemy, I'd magnify your fears, making them appear insurmountable, intimidating you with enough worries until avoiding them becomes your driving motivation. I would use anxiety to cripple you, to paralyze you, leaving you indecisive, clinging to safety and sameness, always on the defensive because of what might happen. When you hear the word faith, all I'd want you to hear is unnecessary risk. Now, the verse she uses here is Joshua 14, 8. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear, but I followed the Lord my God fully. That's not bad, really. God had told them to go into the land, right. and Joshua and Caleb and the other spies went, and the rest did melt with fear when they saw the size of the people, but Joshua believed God. Right, and so that's commendable. That, that one is correct in that setting, and it applies now. We're not trying to take land, as some people claim, and I don't know, I doubt she claims that. Mm -hmm. But there is a good illustration of knowing that God who called us is faithful, and he'll bring us where he promised to take us. That's right. And like you were just mentioning, the work that he has called you to do, he will be faithful in giving you the ability to accomplish it. Yes, and... I see that work out all the time. All right. So there's one we would actually say Very that's well a good done. one. That's a good one. Okay. So strategy seven, your purity, staying strong in your most susceptible places. If I were your enemy, I'd tempt you toward certain sins, making you believe they are basically, even biologically, unavoidable. I'd study your tendencies and proclivities till I learned the precise conditions that make you the most likely to indulge them. And then I'd strike right there again and again, wear you down, because if I can't separate you from God forever, I can at least set you at odds with him for the time being. Now, the Bible verse is Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Do you want to read that one? Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear but your iniquities have made separation between you and your god 
your sins have hidden his face from you so he does not hear. Interesting. Okay. That would... needs to be more carefully expounded. Right. And in, in looking this and compared to her, if I were your enemy, we do have sins that we do wrestle with. And that is going to be a part of our life until we reach glory. But again, we're, this is claiming to have knowledge of what Satan is doing rather than realizing there is still remaining sin that we deal with which well, may or may not be coming from him. Well, the other issue, and I've seen this a lot, an awful lot of, and I, I don't know the theology of Priscilla Shearer, and I'm not saying that she believes this. I don't know. We're, okay. We're book. But a lot of American Christianity is grounded in various versions of perfectionism. Right. And if we believe that was possible to be perfected now. I'm not saying she believes that. Many do. Then everything that's not perfect means we did something wrong and now God won't listen to us until we become pure enough that he'll start listening again. Right. Actually, now, that's why holding that right there, holding right there. I just turned the page and there's a quote right on that. Impurity weakens your praying, which in turn weakens your prayer. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. Uh-huh. I've seen what's happened many, many times when people believe Finney-type perfectionism or Wesleyan perfectionism. The fact is that if you start thinking that I'm not pure enough, I'm not holy enough, there's something I didn't do correct, so I, my prayers are probably not going to work. That is self-defeating to the point where people just won't pray. It doesn't motivate prayer. It motivates hopelessness and leads to worse sin. Right. Okay. And that is not biblical. Okay. So if we're talking about the imputed righteousness of Christ, the blood of Jesus continually cleanses us from all sin. If we're still trusting in him, he doesn't leave us. He convicts us, and we grow by grace through the means of grace. But this is probably not that helpful, unless the purity she's talking about is the imputed righteousness of Christ and the promise he's made to bring us all the way to the end. That's, I've seen a lot of people give up by misapplying some of these verses. I'm not accusing Priscilla of wanting that outcome. I'm sure she doesn't. Right. I think one of the things, one verse actually that really has been important in my life is 1 John 1, 9. It's if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to remember that last part. And if we are telling people that if they're struggling with sin, it's weakening their, weakening their prayer, 
Well, then how can they even do that? How can they confess their sins and believe the promises and trust that he's cleansing them from all unrighteousness if we're telling them their impurity weakens their prayer? Yes, and that idea is what I call pietism. And it's been throughout church history. And it harms people. It always harms people. And it leads to hopelessness and worse sin. I'm not at all saying that Priscilla Shear wants that outcome. I know she doesn't, that she wants people to change and to trust God from what's been written. Right. Many people do, but by claiming that you have to get pure enough first before God will hear you, whether she's saying that, I, I'm not, I doubt, but a lot of people think that way. Right. How many people have contacted us? And I wrote an article some long time ago, years ago, about Hebrews and apostasy. Yes. We get more calls from people that say, well, I think I committed apostasy. Now it's hopeless. Right. If they're concerned about that, it's not true. Right. Because I've also heard from people say, well, some of the people that go to your church has given me your article and I, I, I renounced Christ. One pastor told me, I renounced Christ. I'm happier without religion. Tell them to quit bothering. <laughs> but the people that get smitten and afraid are ones that are concerned about whether God won't hear them. That's right. And so it's really a very serious thing when we start giving people the idea that they have to be pure enough to pray. Well, if you look at Isaiah 59, 2, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, your sins have hidden his face from you so he does not hear, that would be applicable to apostasy. Right. See, in the Aaronic benediction that was we find in the Old Testament, uh, may God uh, shine his face upon you, lift up his countenance upon you, I think is how it is. Yes. We'll see the face, prosopod is the Greek word. When God looks favorably, it's because he has made you his people and you believed him and you have a relationship with him. Okay. So if God hides his face because you're not pure enough, he doesn't hear you, who are you going to ask? Who are you going to pray to? That just creates a hopeless situation. Right. And this is under, I'd have to again look up that in the context. God's not lacking ability, but we need a mediator. This is under the old covenant. He sends Jesus Christ to be faithful in all of the temptations so that we have hope and can come to God through him. Right. So I would um, urge people to be very careful not to adopt any version of perfectionism. Finney said that revival is not a miracle. It's just the right use of means. I'm not saying that I know that Priscilla Shear believes Finney or Wesley or any other version of perfectionism, but I have to warn against it because it'll be hopeless. And a lot of people feel like, okay, God will never hear me because I can't get myself pure. Right. Without saying that's what she's claiming, but it's probably not going to give you hope and rest and comfort uh, and 
knowledge of God if you start thinking I'm not pure enough. Right. And this doesn't mean we shouldn't ask God to deliver us from everything and forgive our sins. Yes. All right. We have three more to cover and we're getting a little short on time. Okay. So I am just going to read the sections from the beginning of the book that are a little, little shorter. Okay. Um, strategy eight against your rest and contentment. He hopes to overload your life and schedule, pressuring you to constantly push beyond your limits, never feeling permission to say no. Deuteronomy 515. Now, Deuteronomy 515 says this. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Okay, this one is often confused. Sabbath rest, it's clearly stated in the book of Hebrews, right. in Christ. Yes. The most careful, fastidious, Sabbath keeper, whether it's somebody that believes it has to be on Saturday or somebody believes in replacement theology, Sunday is the only day you can worship. We've dealt with that for decades. No matter how much you try to do it, if you're not in Christ, you're still relying on your own works and you'll never have any rest. That's right. It's really about whether or not we are in Christ. And if we are in Christ, we have Sabbath rest. And that's not referring to, did we get our kids overcommitted in baseball and soccer and piano lessons? And are we running all the time and have no rest? That is not the rest that's being referred to. Right. Sabbath rest is found in Christ. You might be, some people that we may know over the years have so much rest, they don't do anything. Right. And they're not overcommitted because they don't believe in committing to anything. And others may be very, very busy and get a lot of stuff done. That's not the issue. If you're in Christ, you have rest, and you want to gather with God's people as the opportunity is there, and it's not what you do or don't do on a certain day, which I don't know that she's claiming, but rest is found only in Christ. Right. In this context, she's using it just as how many demands are on your schedule, how, many, how full is your calendar which is something I'm sure we all struggle with, especially in different seasons, but that's not, that's not an indication of what Satan is doing against us. Yes, that, uh, it's really sad because the truth is more powerful than looking at my problem than trying to find a verse that might apply. Right. Okay, strategy nine, against your heart. He uses every opportunity to keep old wounds fresh in mind, knowing that anger and hurt and bitterness and unforgiveness will continue to roll the damage forward. Hebrews 12, 15. So here's Hebrews 12, 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Wow. Uh, that one I covered many times. And the bitter root, it goes back to the Old Testament, Jacob and Esau, I believe, I believe is the context there. Okay. And um, the, the passage in the context is about apostasy. Right. And the bitterness comes when 
a person is bitter about what God has provided and gone and went and looked for something else. That reminds me of Jonah when at the end of the book, when the plant springs up and gives him a shade and then it shrivels up and dies. And he's mad about that too. Yeah. Now in the case of Jonah, he was a reluctant prophet. Yeah. But uh, it was an object lesson. God forgives sins here. Um, let me read the context after that verse 16, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. And you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though it was sought with tears. This was selling your birthright, which was the lineage to the promises of a coming Messiah for some food. Okay. The warning there is very dire, and we don't want to depart from God, but... Um, I don't know what it has to do with against your heart. Right. And we do, her point in this is that we do need to be careful that we're not allowing bitterness and unforgiveness to, to spring up in our heart. That's true. That's a good warning. Yep. I used to, years and years ago, before I got back to just really digging into the scriptures, I used to teach a course on avoiding the root of bitterness. Yeah. That would be in like late 70s, early 80s. Okay. The more I studied this, it's even more profound than being bitter. It's a very good point, though, because bitterness would mean God, I don't believe God's going to take care of me. It's more important that I'm happy right now for the moment. Right. But the danger would be departing from the living God. Yes. And so it's a good warning. Mm -hmm. Probably a lot of the people who just need to realize that we're safe in Christ and that the only way our hearts will ever be cleansed is by God doing a work of grace from the inside out. All right. So strategy 10 is against your relationships. He creates disruption and disunity within your circle of friends and within the shared community of the body of Christ. The reference is 1 Timothy 2.8 which says, therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. In her book, what she said, what she calls this is friendly fire, like the military term, when there is dissension and bickering within our Christian relationships. That does happen. And it's certainly important that we don't allow our personal issues with other people that we know are part of the body of Christ to be destroyed because we won't be uh, someone who, how would you say it? We can't be reconciled. I've seen that happen. Right. And it's important. And frankly, it's, it is important to not allow petty or unimportant or things that are based on misreading of scripture to destroy the body of Christ. Right. I can agree with that. Yep. And, and it is important that we, as much as we can dwell in unity yes. in what we have in Christ. Yes. That's important. Yep. 
I, I would say that when that doesn't happen, again, we need to be careful about claiming to have hidden knowledge about whether or not Satan is behind it. But it is very important that we treat the body of Christ well, that we do care about preserving unity and peace whenever it's possible. Amen. We are out of time for this edition of Critical Issues Commentary Radio. We want to remind you that you can access this program and many others, as well as years worth of articles at the website, cicministry.org. While you're there, click on contact and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. We want to encourage you all to stand firm in one spirit with one mind and strive together for the faith of the gospel. For Critical Issues Commentary, this is Jessica Kramis. And Bob DeWay. We'll see you next week.